Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. So our guest today is Chris Gates, Director of Product Security at Valentium. Uh, it would be impossible to summarize Chris's accomplishments in one sentence, but I'll try. During the past uh, 20 plus years, he built a huge legacy as a product security expert for embedded systems and especially medical devices. He has helped dozens of leading medical device manufacturers build their product security practice. And if that's not enough, he's also involved in building the security frameworks that are being used by the entire industry, most notably S-bombs. So I, I really hope we have enough time for this one because we sure have a lot of questions. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for those kind words, and uh, thank you for having me here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into medical device security. Well, um, it really started back as a child. Uh, I've always been a hacker. Uh, back when I was in elementary school, there was like monitors, and there would be ball monitors, hallway monitors, and there was bike monitors, and everybody hated that. Except for me, I always volunteered for that because you got to sit out by the bikes and you had pinned locks, warded locks, combination locks. So I spent the whole time sitting there. Nobody else ever came around there. And I was sitting there opening up the locks and closing them back up again. And it's like, as you know, lock picking and hacking go together, you know, where very similar things, a common trait. So much so that when we do training, we actually send out lock picks to, the, to our students and, and clear locks. So we go through and they can learn lock picking. It's one of those things that are so literally I've always been doing this, but then in college, I really got more serious. And at the time, the DARPA network, this was the precursor to the Internet and uh, went out and explored many connected systems all over uh, and penetrated into all of them. Security back in those days was laughable. Uh, so literally, you could walk through anything into the Pentagon, into anywhere. And uh, so it was it was uh, it was fun. And that's where I got started doing this. And then over the course of my day job as a medical device developer, I intersected with my job, uh, either uh, looking at a competitor's products and doing reverse engineering and extracting algorithms or protecting our medical devices. Uh, typically, that ran into something like you had some consumable part of your medical device and you wanted to make somebody sure, make sure somebody didn't counterfeit it or re-enable its use for, for longer periods of time. You were protecting your business model. So they intersected, and then about 17 years ago, I was at uh, a very large medical device firm, uh, arguably the largest in the world, helping them with some low-power RF issues, and they got very publicly hacked, and they were kind of running around going, what does this mean? What do we do? What do they want? And so I had to kind of come out and go, well, I could tell you, and they're like, well, what do you know about it? It's like, well, it's something you don't generally talk about. <laughs> but but I'm a hacker and I can explain to you how this works and how he did this and how to prevent it. And this gave me, as it was, this had been a very short contract, but I ended up being there seven years as a contractor. And I allowed me not only at this one division, but the entire empire of this company, and it's a big company, 
influence how this went. And I got to try out things. And the first couple of things didn't work. So for instance, hacking's easy, okay? You find one thread, you follow it through, you make it work. If not, you back out, you try another thread. But preventing hacking of a device, a device that you have physical access to, you can take it home and attack it in your basement 24-7, much more difficult. Even harder, how do I incorporate this into a normal development life cycle that these engineers can do that you can then track and manage as a project, as a project manager, and know where you are in this process and when you're going to be done, and then create artifacts for regulatory submission. All these didn't exist at this time. So looking at some of the IT frameworks and stuff that they had done, some of them were applicable, most of them were not. There's so many differences between IT cybersecurity and OT, operational technology cybersecurity, um, that it's it's really depressing. And to this day, I run into it. Literally, as recently as yesterday, I see manufacturers trying to develop devices and referencing IT standards like ISO 27001 or NIST 800-53. And it's like, well, those are great infrastructure standards, please feel free to implement that in your organization, but it does nothing for your device development. So literally going through, and there are some good standards out there now, like the Health Sector Coordinating Council's Joint Security Plan, the JSP. But back then I was identifying tools, techniques, procedures, how to make this work. And so instilled this in this company and not only learned a lot, but it was a great sandbox for me to work in to refine this. And so about five years ago, uh, Valentium was also contracting to this firm and the CTO of Valentium, well, we were in a meeting together and he came over and said, I got to talk to you. And it's like, we really need you at Valentium. We're trying to build up the cybersecurity side of us. We're a new product consultancy where you come to us and we develop your medical device, but we'd have nobody for cybersecurity. So that was five years ago as of January. And uh, I joined them and built up the team. Uh, I now have this really good team where I have brought in firmware engineers, software engineers, hardware engineers, and we train them in cybersecurity because you cannot find these people. Um, You think IT cybersecurity is hard to find? OT, just they don't exist. So what you do is you train them, you create them. And that's the best because they walk into it with the knowledge of an engineer. And then they've also been taught to think like a hacker. And you're looking at these as an engineer, or then you shift gears and look at it as a hacker. It gives you the best. So, so yeah. Uh, and since joining Valentium, I've got to work with a lot of good people and standards bodies and working groups, including the Health Sector Coordinating Council, NTIA, working with the SBOMs, uh, CISA now for SBOMs, FDA work, uh, the Health ISAC, HISAC. Uh, Amy, I'm on the editorial review board for Amy, um, and Bluetooth special interest group. I'm on the medical device experts working group there. So it has really got me into a lot of places, including, as you can see on the bookcase behind me, writing, co-writing the first book on medical device cybersecurity. And that was uh, the best book of 2021 in a number of reviews. So very cool. We're in the process of doing the second edition, by the way. The the, uh, publisher came back and said, it's one of our most popular books ever. We want second edition written. So we're going to triple the size of it. So the the arc of my cybersecurity career is really just a crusade to change the medical device industry. I'm here to change this industry, make it so these engineers know how to do this. It's not going to be a specialist like me and my team. 
bring us in on the weird, the odd, the stuff you can't solve. But I don't want to have to explain the difference between symmetric and asymmetric encryption to every client. I want them to know this. I want them to know that encryption and hashing are two separate things. Okay. I want them to know how to spell cybersecurity. Uh, so that's where I'm going with this is I'm trying to change my industry of medical device development to protect lives and take us to a much better place. And if you think it's not needed, there are some really bad people out there. And you don't really have to look any further than what's going on right now in Ukraine. Cyber attacks makes it just that much easier for people to abstract away the humanity or inhumanity of what they're doing and have no empathy for the victims. Yesterday, they disclosed years worth of text messages from the ransomware group Conti. And they're linked to the Russian intelligence groups. And uh, these were made public and police are out there in plain text. It's like, oh, your own OPSEC's not very good. And some of the messages in that thing just demonstrate how bad these people really are. I mean, as such as in 2020, during the height of the pandemic, Conti released a wave of ransomware that attacks about 400 hospitals. And what did they text each other? F the clinics in the USA. And it will certainly set off a panic. Oh, wow. If, if you, yeah, no kidding. If you think somebody's <clears throat> going to attack your medical device, because it would be too horrible a thing to do. Think again. These people are out there and they're looking for your device. Incredible. Incredible. And you know, Chris, uh, listening to where you've come to, and it all started with picking locks in the uh, <laughs> in the backyard or the, the park of the school, the high school. Yep. Wow. Amazing. I used, to, I, used to drive my, I used to drive my parents crazy with that, by the way. They just they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, a, amazing. Oh, it's oh, it's a lock. Let me walk through it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also used to try picking locks. I wasn't very good at it, so I went into marketing. <laughs> hmm. uh, there you go. Even <laughs> an even an even harder door to open. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> so, so tell me, as one of the leading voices shaping medical device security standards. Uh, you know, most recently, a lot of the work you've been doing around S-bombs. And so, so where do you think that regulations are headed? And, you know, what, what advice would you give to product security teams in order to prepare themselves, you know, to be able to comply with the regulations that are in place today? And of course, those that will evolve in the coming years. Well, there's not a lot of trust from the FDA, for instance, for medical device developers, MDMs. And, um, I can only imagine that the controls are going to be stronger, that we're going to see more cybersecurity audits, maybe cybersecurity certifications of medical devices. Certainly, we'll see cybersecurity labeling that's already being worked on by NIST, uh, where pre-procurement, there will be a label like Energy Star type labels that you can look at and as an amateur, quickly gauge your cybersecurity risk as you look at this label and go, oh, this one's got nothing or, oh, they are doing way above and beyond. These labelings may include things such as what the organization does, what you did for this product, what the privacy is uh, geared toward on these devices. That's some of the topics that the NIST group is talking about. I think that's excellent because nothing like influencing money to get people to cooperate. So I love this cybersecurity labeling. But yeah, we'll see more 483s, more warning letters, more rejections. Maybe I would like to see Congress give FDA a direct mandate to include cybersecurity as part of their mission. Uh, right now, it's all under the guise of safety, which is true. But if I walk into a hospital via a pole mountain fusion pump and pivot and go out and attack the rest of the segments that I have access to, and it's still infusing, how is that safety? Yet you're still damaging the hospital. So people think of this as direct risk, 
caused by your device, because that's how we've thought about it for so long when doing hazard analysis of our devices. We don't think about what can our device do to the other devices around us. So you need to start thinking about that. And I have to admit, I'm kind of in the middle of this. I'm in this weird place now where, yes, I'm an MDM. Yes, I'm a developer. But I'm also on the regulatory side of it, too. And I mean, these people that I know and, and work with all the time, they're my friends and, and I understand their position. And so whenever you see this, it's not hard to say, gosh, if they did such a poor job on cybersecurity, what about the quality of the, of the normal medical issue, the, the, the indications that you're working with? Did you do a good job on that overall of your product? And then you start to question it because if they're going to ignore one aspect, maybe they're ignoring others. So you kind of have to look at this and say, if, if you're ignoring cybersecurity at this day and age, then you're no longer a victim. You can't say, oh, I got hacked. It's like, you're now a co-conspirator. You've opened the door to this. Right. right. You've, right. you've left your front door open. You've left your back door open. You left all the windows open. At what point are you no longer a victim? So these attackers are out there. So what do I advice I give? Start implementing and integrate cybersecurity in your development lifecycle. Good documents, Amy, TIR 57, um, the aforementioned uh, HSCC Joint Security Plan, JSP. And by the way, we're just now starting to revise it. There's a second version of the JSP coming here in the months ahead. Uh, but literally, we haven't had our first meeting yet. Uh, but it is still one of the best references for incorporating cybersecurity into your development system. So start looking at that. Start going there. Ignore the infrastructure standards, but look to Amy TIR 57 and JSP, both good standards. So you're working with so many medical device manufacturers. I'm curious, what's the most common mistake you're, you're witnessing with regards to cybersecurity? Maybe something that's often overlooked. Oh, there are so many ways to answer that. <laughs> uh, I mean, where, where do you start? There is process, there is technology. So, you know, complete willful disregard for any security mitigations. Like I mentioned, it's like, there are still a number of them that goes, I don't need to secure this. And it's like, uh, there's some of them that decide to place it over risk. I know our medical device doesn't cause risk. Again, like I mentioned, the pole mountain fusion, but maybe you're just the pivot point. Right? So there's so many things that they overlook intentionally that only now am I starting to th see things change. So from a technical point of view, the most common mistake I see is leaving manufacturing line functionality open and available and enabled in the ship medical device. During production, you need to have access to certain things. Maybe you need to calibrate it. Maybe you need to stress test it. Maybe you need to, whatever it is, exercise it on your manufacturing line. That's great. But when that device reaches the end of that line, that should be disabled or at least put behind tough forms, cryptographically significant forms of authentication. They should not be in that ship medical device. So these kind of things are operating far outside of normal operating parameters of the medical device. So the Pole Mountain Fusion Pump, for instance, it's going to infuse at a certain rate, but that has an acceptable range that you can set on that device. In manufacturing, trust me, you've got much broader. I can squirt stuff out of there like it's a fire hose. Okay, so you can see how that kind of functionality can really be used in a very unsafe manner. So that is probably the most common thing. I also see things like assuming that a health delivery organization, hospital clinics, whatever, an HDO is a safe space for your medical device. Oh, we don't need to authenticate the user. Oh, we can leave this USB port completely unsecured because we're in a hospital. Hospitals are not monolithic, okay? There is Mayo Clinic, 
and Timothy Walsh at Mayo Clinic and a few hundred other staff devoted to pin testing of new medical devices before it comes into their network. Mayo is the example at the far end of the scale. Then there's a hospital that's in Ohio. This is real, by the way, who the same guy that mows their lawn is the guy that configures their IT network. And you got everybody in between. HDOs are not safe spaces. In fact, when you're a developer, you have to think of my device is going into a hostile environment. How do I protect it? It's the only way you can do that because odds on it's not going to mail. It's going to one of the other organizations. So yeah, those are the mistakes I see, but my goodness, there's so many others as well too. Wow. Thank you very much. That's, that's incredible. So maybe we'll flip to the other side. You know, what's the most amazing or unbelievable moment you experienced in cybersecurity world? Maybe it's also uh, a you know, mistake that you've seen <laughs> over and over, um, or maybe it's something, you know, that, that you saw that really shaped the way that you look at things, you know, something maybe earlier in your career or maybe even recently. So one of the things that I really love about working with Valentium is over my 50-year career span of developing medical devices, 50 years this year. I used to be the little kid that walked in and said, get out of my way. And now I'm the old man, right? (laughs) So uh, working at Valentium is wonderful because we have real moral laws we go by. We're honorable, results plus plus, humble charisma. We're working to change lives for the better. What does that mean in reality? We do things like hand back checks to potential clients. We're not going to work with you. Our goal is to help you realize your product and bring it to market faster, but it's a safe product. If we think you're not doing a good job, if you're trying to just subvert the system, we're going to pass on you. And so we've seen a lot of that, and we've literally walked away from quite a few of them. In some cases, they want help. In in a few cases, they don't. So on a negative note, the first time I came across a medical device that had such critical vulnerabilities that it could have resulted in mass casualty events, literally really bad scenarios, kind of deaths that you could have killed a lot of people. And even if they were standing in an emergency room, they, it wouldn't help. Uh, don't worry, this thing is no longer in use. It's, it's off the market. I managed to, to make changes to it to shrink down the risk tremendously, but even still, the overall product is now off the market. So, and it didn't have a very long lifespan anyway. So it's even things that are residual somewhere, it's not gonna be in use. But that doesn't mean there's not others. So I remember that very distinctly because it made such an impact to me of just how dangerous this can be. We may think in terms of small scale attacks, a hospital or something, but we don't think about taking say an entire city and killing everybody with that medical device. Okay, Uh, but that's the kind of thing that is possible. But that's a negative. Let me end this on a positive, okay? The first time I spent many months training staff, development engineers, and I remember we were at a design review and someone was adding a new feature into this medical device. And one of the staff engineers, now I'm there to represent cybersecurity, right? So I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, listening for this stuff. And they added this new feature and it's occurring to this, but one of the staff engineers after all of his training said, yeah, but what are the vulnerabilities that this new feature will add, okay? And I literally teared up because I'm like, yes, that's exactly the way to think about this. Yes, whenever you make that change, what does that mean for this device? Use cases matter. Literally as part of a vulnerability assessment we do, it's a form of threat modeling where we formally decompose your your system and look for design vulnerabilities. Quick aside, there are three different forms of vulnerabilities that you create in your development lifecycle. These are responsible for all of the threats. There are design vulnerabilities. There are things like 
Um, I'm not going to encrypt that data at rest. Uh, I'm not going to put integrity checks on that data in motion. I'm not going to authenticate a connecting device or a user. Those are design choices and mistakes. That are made. Those are design vulnerabilities. There's implementation vulnerabilities. I'm not checking input buffers. I'm using unsafe intrinsic values and functions to move cryptographic material around that I could use side channel attacks on. And then the third place is in the use of third-party software components. You mentioned SBOM. Uh, that's where SBOM starts to come in. I hate the word soup. It's like, it's, it's soup's a terrible name for that. It's third-party software components, operating systems, frameworks, libraries, communication stacks. These are the things. Those are the three areas we look at. Well, that first one for design vulnerabilities, we do vulnerability assessments using threat modeling, and we use Stride to formally decompose your system and give us a list of potential vulnerabilities. But then once we have that, that's not enough. You've got to look at the use case. So let's say you have, so if I'm on the SIG, they send me swag here, a blue squishy Bluetooth thing. Okay, uh, you've got a device here that's emitting Bluetooth and it's just telling you it's, it's battery life. Do you care about integrity, authentication, encryption, authorization? Nope, you don't, you don't care about that at all. It's just pushing out, yeah, I'm 97% full of battery, right? But if all of a sudden, let's say that's an automatic external defibrillator, okay? all of a sudden you can now connect to that over Bluetooth and you can change the amount of energy being delivered during an event, or you can trigger an event, all of a sudden that same topography now has lots of things that need to be mitigated. Integrity checks, authentication, authorization, all of the usual stuff has to suddenly come into place. What changed? The use case changed. Same hardware, okay, but I changed the use case on it. So an important part of this to look at design is think about your use cases. So when you do that, as a use case change, maybe this is a legacy product that you're now has been out in the market for five years and you're now about to add a new feature to. That doesn't mean you don't have to think about security. Think about, oh, this new feature. What did this change? What did this change? And when you do stuff like that, people like me will get all emotional and teary about this because it's like, yes, I'm making a difference. Yes. Now you understand. <laughs> now you understand your eyes are open. Yes. Right. You know, one of the things, talk about eyes open. One of the things, we have a training, uh, three-tier training program that we do for staff engineers. And the first thing we do on the first day in the first hours is we drag out a bunch of ways to attack a device, an embedded device. And we show them how easy it is to do, how cheap it is to do. With you know, $20 worth of components and 10 minutes worth of instructions, you're attacking these products. And that opens their eyes every time. I can't tell you how many otherwise sane software engineers say, once I compile my code, you can't read it. It's like, okay, let me introduce you to a decompiler. <laughs> and especially if it's a managed code base like .NET. And it's like, you know, and every time you see the eyes get big and they're like, and I says, now think about that product you're working on right now. You just did a side channel attack and we just walked encryption keys out of this device here. Okay. Think how easy that was. Think about what you're doing on your device. And they're like, oh, good Lord. And it's like, yeah, that's it exactly. Okay. So the first thing you have to do is shock them and make them think this isn't a giant nation state tools. These are stuff the kids are doing. They're, you know, they're decapping processors in their basement. They're using acids I wouldn't touch. Okay. <laughs> and it's like, this is the kind of stuff that's going on. And once engineers start to realize, this isn't a theoretical, but a very practical, ongoing, active forms of attack against your system, then they can start to fix them. And so that's where we start. We slap them around a little bit up front, and then we start giving them the tools to, and how do you prevent them? Amazing. Great. It is amazing. 
In part two, Chris will give his tips and tricks for product security teams and share with us the most amazing moment he had in the security world. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.